You're listening to The Turing Podcast, a production of the Alan Turing Institute, the UK's National Institute for Data Science and Artificial Intelligence. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Turing Podcast. This is another remote edition being recorded over Zoom. Um, from everyone's respective bedrooms. Um, I'm here today with my new co-host, B. B, how's it going? Hello. Um, it's great. I'm so glad to be back. So this is exciting. Yes. <laughs> this is the second time you've appeared on the podcast, the first time as a guest. Today I've roped you in as a co-host. So I'm hoping you're going to do a good job. Oh, I'm hoping <laughs> I do a good job too. <laughs> <laughs> Um, today we're talking with Victoria Carr, and she's a PhD student studying bioinformatics at King's College London and the Alan Turing Institute. Uh, Vicky, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for inviting me. No problem. Um, so I'm just going to kick off and just dive in. Um, today we're talking about uh, antibiotic resistance and the research you've been doing about that. So why are antibiotics so important to the world? And why is the development of antibiotic-resistant microbes such a huge problem? Yeah, so when we use antibiotics, we usually take them if we have a an infection that's either caused by a bacteria, a bacterial pathogen. So that's when we would take antibiotics. Or even fungal infections as well, such as aspergillus, um, you would take some kind of antifungal. So... Antimicrobial resistance, and I'm going to call it AMR for short, um, is basically when the microbe, such as a bacteria or a fungus, becomes resistant to the antibiotic or the antimicrobial drug that you're taking. So essentially what would happen is if I had an infection um, and I took an antibiotic, this antibiotic would become less effective at, um, at removing the infection. And that could be potentially really fatal. So it's really important at the moment because in the last, I guess, the last 50 years since the discovery of antibiotics, AMR has become a lot more prevalent. Um, This is because there's been generally like an overuse or a misuse of antibiotics, um, which has meant that microbes have evolved to become resistant to the antibiotics to survive. Um, and it's become such a big problem now that about 700,000 people worldwide die of AMR per year. Um, and to put that into a bit of perspective, so at the moment, while this is being recorded, that's four times more than the people who are supposedly dying of coronavirus at the moment. So wow. it's a really okay. big problem. Um, and there's another statistic that's been floating around that some of you may have heard of, is that by 2050, I think 10 million people will die of AMR per year. And that's currently more than the number of people who die of cancer per year in the world. So yeah, it's a big problem and we've got to try and fix it. And just thinking about, yeah, in the context of the pandemic we have at the moment, obviously that this is being caused by a virus, but in terms of these bacteria which are evolving, do, well, you're saying a lot of people are dying of them anyway, but do any of these have the potential to become pandemics 
um, if, say, all of our antibiotics fail because of a particular microbe has evolved to resist, resist all of them? Yeah, so in terms of epidemics, um, there is a classic example that um, was pretty fatal in Europe in the last decade, and that's MRSA. You may have heard of it. Um, So basically, that was an antibiotic resistant superbug that spread through a lot of um, intensive care units and hospitals that turned into an epidemic and killed, I think, several thousand people in Europe, at least I know of. Um, But certainly there are strains or bacterial strains that are becoming resistant to all antibiotics, at least the last the last antibiotic you could possibly use which is colistin at the moment. And that's been seen in um, areas in um, eastern side of the world, especially in China and India. Um, But there hasn't been necessarily very many cases like that. But yeah, that that has potential to cause an epidemic or a pandemic in the future. I I know just from thinking about it in the past and having reading things about it, that it's partly due to doctors over-prescribing, but it's also a lot to do with them being used on farm animals. Um, because when you have all of these factory-farmed animals, you know, stuck in together, they get diseases, and so people just apply these antibiotics quite liberally, um, and that's just sort of like another reservoir for potential um, uh, mutation of these microbes. Yeah, so um, a lot of antibiotics are being used in farming. And also I should mention antifungals in crop farming as well is a problem. Um, So, I mean, like you said, they've been used not just to treat low-level infections in animals, they're also used as growth promoters, especially in the United States. So antibiotics have this side effect that they can actually make an animal bigger, so there's more yield, and lots of farmers like to use that in the US. But in the European Union, that's banned. So there needs to be like a lot more legislation involved in limiting the use of antibiotics in farm animals and antifungals in crop farming as well. Um, in terms of how it spreads um, to to humans, um, there isn't really much definitive evidence that antibiotics or antibiotic resistance, AMR, actually spreads from farm animals to humans and can cause clinical um, resistance in humans yet. Uh, but there has been some evidence of antimicrobial resistant genes, which I'll go on to, being found in people who work in animal farms. So there is a little bit of evidence, but th- there, it isn't conclusive. And at the moment, uh, there's a lot, been a lot of um, misinformation about whether it's safe or not to eat um, uh, to eat animals or to eat meat. Um I, I mean, the answer to that, it, it is safe as long as you cook it and like you're not going to get AMR from just eating meat, cooked or raw meat from animals, as far as we know. Yeah, the reason I mention it, I guess, is because we're sort of worried about the animal origins of coronavirus at the moment. So it's worth thinking about it in this context as well. Yeah, I mean, definitely it's true. I mean, it's difficult to say where the coronavirus actually originated from. There's been many different arguments and studies. Um, But yeah, I guess if you're working in very close contact with animals, there is a real risk that you could could catch that. 
pathogen, that resistant pathogen, definitely. Um, I guess the the risk really is when how does it transfer from, say, a farmer to the wider community and potentially to places like hospitals? Um, just just a, a common misconception that people so that that leads to the misuse of uh, antibiotics is um, taking antibiotics for viral infections as well, right? Uh, which I think is quite relevant to talk now because there is a virus, um, but people sometimes take antibiotics for because of the flu, which is also a virus, um, and that leads to a higher misuse, right? That being said, I guess in the current crisis. A lot of people are getting pneumonia associated with the coronavirus, right? So they do need to take antibiotics. But but you're right, you know, it can't they can't kill viruses, so that's another thing. That's that's on the on the pneumonia and not necessarily for the common flu um, um, Absolutely, symptoms. Yeah. 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 So yeah, it's a tricky one because often even for just the flu, you could go to the doctors and say, oh, you know, I've had this persistent cough for a while or, you know, I've um, been feeling, I've had some kind of flu-like symptoms and a lot of doctors would just prescribe an antibiotic just as a precaution Um, because I guess the consequences of you potentially having a pneumonia infection that is bacterial and you not taking antibiotics and therefore suffering as a consequence is a lot worse for the doctor than say precautionally giving an antibiotic which given the current crisis of AMR is debatable but this is why it's a difficult one for doctors because you're you're weighing up the the health benefits for the individual versus the collective responsibility across the world I guess exactly yeah um, so even with some of the COVID patients that are coming through, even if they haven't been tested with like a secondary bacterial infection, they're sometimes just automatically given antibiotics just as a precaution. So, yeah, there's definitely right. a, like a I would say there is an overuse of antibiotics in this current pandemic at the moment. OK, well, I'm going to ask you a, a question related to your own research now. Um, so your your research focuses on antibiotic resistant microbes found in the mouth, mm-hmm. as opposed to the better studied gut microbiome. Mm-hmm. Uh, what can you tell us about differences between those two environments and the relevance for antibiotic resistance? Yep. So, so what we were looking at um, was looking at the profile of antimicrobial resistance genes um, in the gut and the mouth. So um, just for a bit of context, antimicrobial resistance genes are genes that can cause AMR. Um, And the way in which they do that is that these genes can code for a protein that can either block the effect of an antibiotic drug, it can modify its drug target, for example. And so these mechanisms lead to the resistance of that microbe. So So another way of saying that is like, if this... uh microbe has one of these genes is because it's evolved to be resistant to to the uh, antibiotic yeah so in general some genes um have been acquired um and have rendered this if microbe I should say you did scare quotes there i did the i acquired. did scare <laughs> yes i did quote for our listeners um yes yeah, so i want to mention acquired later because that's the second part of my research 
but some microbes can acquire these genes and evolve to become resistant to antibiotics. But some of these genes have been there for you know millennia and actually are a natural part of a microbe. So this is why I'm trying to distinguish those genes that are acquired and have evolved resistance against antibiotics that humans use rather than those that are present naturally in microbes. So essentially, um, we compared the antimicrobial resistant genes in the gut and the mouth. And as you said, there's loads of research looking at antimicrobial resistant genes in the gut. Um, And this is because it's quite easy to sample, um, I guess, poo samples from people and sequence (laughs) all the DNA from that um, rather than collecting weirdly samples from the mouth. Because I think you have to go through a lot more um, safety, health and safety processes, extracting or scrubbing dental plaque from from someone's mouth than it is to actually take stool samples which is quite interesting but um uh the stool the gut itself as well it's exposed to a high level of antibiotic so if you imagine taking an antibiotic it passes straight through the mouth really quickly right and then it and then it's sort of um it it stays in the gut for some time so there's like a high there's a there's a greater amount of time where these antibiotics can select for microbes that can evolve resistance. So I think there is a general interest in the scientific community at looking at the gut. So since I I work at the Dental Institute at King's College London, we decided to look at the the mouth and try and compare um the mouth to the gut. And what we found which was really interesting was that although the gut has a really high diversity of different types of genes, the oral cavity doesn't have as much diversity. But for those genes that are really highly abundant in the oral cavity, um, these are much, much more highly abundant in the oral cavity than they are in the gut. And so that led us to hypothesise that those genes that are left in the oral cavity are basically they persist in the human body and they're perhaps more relevant to clinical AMR than say those that are in the gut. Just because you have a gene doesn't mean that a microbe might be resistant. So this is another paradigm that I'd have to... So just just to back up for a second. Yes. When you say, talking about the different genes that are either in the gut or in the mouth, you're talking about these bacterial genes, the genes that um allow these bacteria to overcome the antibiotic but what you're saying is that the microbes in the gut or the microbes in the mouth rather have more of these genes yeah you find so is this in different diseases or or so or in the context of of patients that have been uh infected with different microbes or or this is just generally um, so to answer your first question, um, so um, the the amount of genes in the um, oral cavity is a lot higher than in the gut. So we're seeing a higher abundance of particular genes, but in the gut, there's a high is lower low abundance, but a higher diversity of different types of genes. If that makes sense, different types of antibiotic resistant yes, genes exactly. that are 
found in across the variety of microbes in the gut. Exactly. And that might have different resistance to different antibiotics. Whereas in the oral right, cavity, right. we have a higher abundance of genes that are resistant to particular types of antibiotics. Um, in terms of your second question, um, so we took a cohort of healthy individuals uh, from uh, samples worldwide. So from USA, China, um, the Philippines and uh, Germany and France. So these were just in healthy individuals and not in disease disease individuals. Okay, yeah. Is there a big difference between um, the genes in all? Because the, because th- these are coming from fundamentally different uh, environments and and um, food habits and everything. Yeah. So what we find is there's a a high abundance of um, genes in the oral cavity that are resistant to particular macrolide antibiotics and fluoroquinolones. Um, so we're not entirely sure why these particular genes are really highly abundant in the oral cavity. One suggestion is that in the oral, the oral cavity and the gut have very different microbial environments. So there are different microbes that live in your gut versus in the mouth. So your gut mm-hmm. is really yeah. highly acidic. Um, it digests a lot of food. There's lots of different types of bacteria that are specialized to do that. Whereas the mouth is a completely different environment, really. The mouth is exposed to lots of external environments. So like the air you breathe, the toothpaste you use, you know, all sorts of things. So you're going to have different microbes living in there and because you have different microbes this might mean that different microbes might have different genes so that's something to consider as well but why is it that only a few genes are really highly abundant in the oral cavity compared to the gut is interesting because it seems to suggest that the genes in the gut might actually um locate inside the body and then go to different body sites so as in the microbes that have those genes yeah so the microbes um, in the gut could actually go into the body via the circulatory system in the blood Uh, and then go up into the back into the oral cavity itself as well so that's a possibility i'd have thought just because the way you take antibiotics is swallowing a tablet that it's going to go straight to the gut um and i I guess obviously you want that antibiotic to be distributed around the body via the bloodstream because you might have chest infection or something like that but is it is it possible then that some of these antibiotic resistant bacteria in the mouth are becoming antibiotic resistant because you're not getting the antibiotic to them because it's just in the mouth? Um, yeah, so another part of our argument, yeah, exactly, is that because orally administered antibiotics spend so much time in the gut compared to the oral cavity, there's going to be more selection for those microbes in the gut compared to the mouth. Um, but it's, I guess, I think I'm answering this question correctly. But what we think is, those uh, microbes in the oral cavity are those that represent the ones that persist most in the human body and therefore could come from the gut 
without the selection necessarily the selection pressures from the antibiotics which is really interesting because you don't need to have a presence of antibiotics to have these genes and the fact that they're persistent may mean that they could be more more dangerous in terms of clinical AMR okay um my next question would be how do the genes that enable antibiotic resistance uh, spread throughout microbial populations. So you, you you were about to mention this earlier, but you said you'd <laughs> say that. Yes. Uh, how is a uh, is this horizontal gene transfer between different species? Yeah. Um. Mm-hmm. So first, I'll just explain. There's so many different levels of abstraction. So first, um, I'll talk about how AMR spreads generally in the human population first. So just with any um, pathogen, um, a resistant microbe such as MRSA can spread between humans, right? But in terms of um, a micro, like a selection of microbes, these genes can actually pass between the microbes themselves as well on a lower level. So essentially what happens is a microbe with an antibiotic resistant gene will pass on this gene to another microbe in the same vicinity uh, via a process called horizontal gene transfer. Um, And essentially this antibiotic resistant gene gets integrated into the recipient microbe and then that microbe has potential also to become antimicrobial resistant. So with MRSA, um, they think or scientists believe that the gene that... um, causes MRSA in the in the microbe Staphylococcus aureus actually originated from a normal non-pathogenic Staphylococcus species and it basically acquired this gene through horizontal gene transfer from this friendly microbe and into itself into as a pathogen and then became resistant so it so I should ask at this point up I, I've got a biology degree, but not everyone listening will do. How? What is horizontal gene transfer? It, it, as far as I remember, it's it's pretty much literally bacterial cells, including some from different species, as you've mentioned, literally just sticking tubes into each other and squirting some DNA. Yeah, <laughs> is that right? Yeah. So yeah. So basically, it is it is basically bacteria. Sex. Freaky, bacteria. Yeah, it's basically bacteria <laughs> sex, essentially. <laughs> Um, so yeah, horizontal gene transfer. It, there's lots of different mechanisms. So one way you mentioned is like they stick a tube in and then they inject some of their own DNA into another bacteria. Um, there's also other ways in which they can transfer DNA as well, um, and that's actually through viruses themselves. So there's types of viruses called bacteriophages, and what these bacteriophages do is they um, take they have their own DNA and they actually inject that DNA into bacteria themselves. So that's one mechanism um, and that's called um, transduction. And the one where you mentioned the the tubes, that's conjugation and that's more to do with plasmids. So those circular loops of DNA um, that are also found in bacterial cells. So basically, if the bacteria respected social distancing, there wouldn't be any transfer of genes whatsoever. Exactly, exactly. So if we had social distancing bacteria, there would be no transfer. 
famously don't play by the rules bacteria. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that's interesting. So it seems like there's quite a few different ways that the different bacterial species can transfer DNA amongst each other, basically. Um, and that presents a problem. I mean, it's very useful for them, I guess, because they can evolve to work in different environments and survive. Uh, but from our point of view, it's bad because if the particular DNA that gets transferred is one of these genes that gives them antibiotic resistance, then then it's going to spread from one bacterial species to another or one strain to another. As you mentioned in the case of Staphylococcus, which is the MRSA, right, is the uh, is a resistant form of that. Yeah, exactly. Um, so some of your research I, I noticed was talking about mobile genetic elements and I'll do that in square <laughs> quotes as well. Is it, <laughs> is that, but is that exactly what we've just described or are there other forms of mobile genetic elements Yeah. Uh, besides the uh, conjugation squirting DNA <laughs> into each other or the bacteriophage viruses yeah. infecting the bacteria? So... Yeah, so mobile genetic elements are basically sections of DNA or genetic elements that can carry antibiotic-resistant genes through this process of horizontal gene transfer. So these mobile genetic elements include bacteriophages that I've mentioned, uh, plasmids as well. Um, there's also lots. What are what are plasmids? So plasmids are circular um, sections of DNA that you find in bacteria. So if any of you have done maybe G- GCSE biology, you may remember a bacteria cell, and it has a squiggly ba- DNA drawing, a bit like spaghetti. Um, which is chromosomal DNA, but it also contains a circular plasmid DNA as well. And this uh, plasmid can contain lots of different antimicrobial resistant genes. And that's one of the ways in which antimicrobial resistant genes can commonly be transferred between bacteria actually through transfer of these plasmids. Right. Okay. So this is the, so it's a particular part of the bacteria's DNA, the plasmids, rather than the chromosomal uh, DNA that tends to have these antibiotic-resistant genes and that they can easily transfer amongst each other. Yeah, so chromosomes, or this chromosomal DNA, the spaghetti, it can actually contain antibiotic-resistant genes. And they're also mobile genetic elements within the chromosomes themselves that can also transfer. So... Yeah, I mean, there's so many different ways, but plasmids is one really common way that people recognise can transfer um, antimicrobial resistant genes. So I'm looking at plasmids, uh, bacteriophages, and also um, another type of mobile genetic element called transposons. So those are found in chromosomal DNA that I've mentioned, and also within plasmids themselves. So it's a mobile genetic element within a mobile genetic element. Um, and these transposons... Wow. Inception. It DNA is, inception. It is de- yeah, bacterial DNA <laughs> inception. Um, and these small elements can also transfer resistant genes as well. So there's loads of different mechanisms and loads of different mobile genetic elements. I've, I've named just the kind of the common three ones that there are. 
There are so many more. Okay. Well, that's cool. So, so essentially, bacteria are sharing DNA in all these variety of ways, and that's a big problem for the transmission of uh, antibiotic resistance. Um, it leads me nicely to the next question, which, which is related to your own research. Um, since you've been at the Alan Turing Institute, uh, and bearing in mind that the Turing podcast is thinking about computer science and data science and AI, what? how have you been uh, using software to learn more about um, antibiotic resistance? Yeah, so first I should maybe describe about how I'm using or how I'm using the software to analyze the data I have and actually describe what the data is. So basically how um, we get these genes and these mobile genetic elements is that we extract them from um, huge um, DNA files. And these DNA files are um, generating from sequencing DNA from our sample. So, So essentially you take maybe like a saliva sample and you'll extract as much DNA from that sample as possible and then you'd go and sequence it and then from that sequence sample you would get huge files of DNA characters so DNA is made up of A, T, G's and C's and it's just huge files full of these just four characters essentially and you would never be able to find anything significant or anything useful from just looking at these files so basically as bioinformaticians we need to use computational tools to be able to make sense of this data so in terms of um, identifying these antimicrobial resistant genes there are already tools out there that are able to do this so in my first part of my project I was essentially trying to develop pipelines and to put together the best available software together um, to make a a, a, a pipeline that's able to identify these genes. So that was actually quite simple. Just to back up for a second. Yeah. Sorry, just to back up for a second. So I feel like biologists are sort of ahead of the curve when we're thinking about big data research. You know, you're talking about these big files. And I know like since 2000, since Human Genome Project, there's you know, there's this whole field of bioinformatics or genomics where, like like you said, you just get these big files of, of the DNA readouts. Um, so thinking about that, when, when you when you say you're creating a pipeline, what do you mean by that? You're, you're writing software uh, that's analysing the DNA files? So I'm not necessarily writing software, but I'm using a combination of available software in the right order and in logical steps that's able to help oh, okay. me that's that's what you yes. mean by pipeline yeah <laughs> when i said the word pipeline i was like oh that is a very bioinformatics term <laughs> um <laughs> so that was the first part of the project so that was relatively simple um because the software was there to use already um, but then when it came to the mobile genetic elements that was a lot harder because there wasn't software already available so i had to start developing my own Um, So for the transposons that I mentioned, um, I've basically been uh, developing a tool um, that is able to identify these elements in this data. Um, And that has been basically what I've been spending most of my time at the Alan Turing as an enrichment student. 
Um, I've also been trying to develop as well software for plasmids as well, but that has been less successful. So for plasmids and also bacteriophages, the third type of mobile genetic element, I have just been using already existing software and putting it together in like a logical pipeline. So the software I've been developing has just been for transposon, so one type of mobile genetic element. Um, so yeah. What What's sort of like the end goal of, not specifically exactly what you've done yourself, but this area of research, what would what would uh, how would it help to be able to identify in these big DNA files and essentially what that means is identifying in the genomes in the DNA of the bacteria themselves presumably where the mobile elements that make up the genes that give them antibiotic resistance is that just locating them where they are in in the DNA is that the sort of goal of the what you're doing yeah so I guess the ultimate goal at the end of the day would to be able to identify all the mobile genetic elements in all the microbes in your sample, including location and whether or not they carry antimicrobial resistant genes. Um, So that is probably another several PhDs down the line. (laughs) So (laughs) what I'm trying to do is first identify the mobile genetic elements um, unfortunately, because of the data we have um, and I guess how low resolution it is, for want of a better word, we aren't able to actually identify the location of these mobile genetic elements within a, mi- a microbe genome. That's a really, really hard thing to do. So we're actually just looking at whether they exist or not and whether these mobile genetic elements actually carry resistant genes. Um, And so the end goal of my project really is to just evaluate the antimicrobial resistance risk. So if a microbe was to have a mobile genetic element and and it carries a resistance gene, then it's probably at higher risk of transferring this gene to another microbe that could lead to AMR. I guess... Um, a resistance gene that's not part of a mobile genetic element would probably be at low risk, obviously, of transferring because it can't transfer and then leading to AMR. So the ultimate goal would be to develop some kind of risk. But at the moment, I am essentially just trying to look at what mobile genetic elements are there and what proportion of these genetic elements actually carry these resistant genes. Now, plasmids, as I said before, they they really commonly carry resistance genes. And so they are very heavily involved in spreading resistant genes and causing AMR. But other mobile genetic elements are thought to do this less well. So bacteriophages that I've mentioned is actually a really contentious issue in the um, scientific literature, whether or not they actually carry resistance genes or not. So some um, some studies have actually found resistance genes in these bacteriophages and others haven't. Those that have have suggested that they, you know, they may actually lead to more AMR and others haven't. So yeah, that's a very contentious issue. So it's still a lot of research into that. And with the transposons that I mentioned, the third type, 
Um, there has been very, very little research done in this area on looking at how transposons are connected to these genes in general. So this is like a new pioneering field that I may or may not be successful at discovering, making any discoveries. So that is probably an ambitious but forward-thinking goal to my PhD at the moment, which I have until September to complete. Okay, then you're going to be in the write-up stage. (laughs) Yeah, actually, I'm currently in the well, currently in the write-up stage at the moment. So, yeah, that's fun in the lockdown. (laughs) You you are as well, B, right? Yeah, I was going to say this lockdown is great for all of the PhD students that are in write-up. We are forced to look at that. Awesome. Well, good luck to both of you with that. Um, and thanks so so much for telling us about your research, uh, Vicky. That's all really interesting stuff. Um, before we go, um, there's another thing I wanted to ask you about. I believe that you have your own podcast, blog and community yeah. platform yes. based around women in computer science. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. So alongside my PhD, um, I run a community called Researchers Code. And it is a community that supports women and minorities in uh, tech and research. So this came about a few years ago when I moved to London and I was going to a few meetups in London, tech meetups. And I noticed there was quite um, a low proportion of academics or researchers going to these meetups. And for those that were going, they said they didn't feel like they were represented in the community as much. So um, I decided, okay, let's just run a few meetups for researchers. Um, And since then, it has grown massively. Uh, We started a podcast um, last year in January, and I run that with my co-host, Olatz, who's also at KCL. Um, We also have a Twitter page that hosts a Women in Tech and Research every week. And so they get to discuss and chat about their day-to-day lives, what kind of coding tools they use in their research. And that's really fun. Uh, We also have a blog as well, which is open for anyone to write anything about. Um, And yeah, we did a few events last year as well. I looked up the website and the blog just before speaking to you and I I noticed this was the most recent one from you. Yeah, it was. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I was like, this is going to come up, isn't it? (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. So, yeah, B was interviewed. So we finally got that up. Yeah, it's been fun. It's it's been quite difficult through the COVID pandemic, though. I think, like, morale for anything that's not related to COVID generally has been difficult and especially with our Twitter contributors a lot of them have children so it's been quite you know I've had to be very we've had to be really accommodating to those people which has been fine Um, but yeah it has been has slowed down a bit but yeah we're still doing the podcast Um, we're still that's what I was going to ask I was going to ask I used to have you managed to do any remote podcast episodes before this one? <laughs> yeah, we did. We did one on open science. So listeners, just shameless plug, go to researchersco.com forward slash podcast and check out that latest episode. So basically we talk about um, 
how um, we, as scientists, um, promote better science through open publications that are not paywalled, through better sharing our tools more tools more openly. And yeah, go and check it out. So we've had some really great speakers on there. Maybe we should do like a, another, maybe I should interview you for a Researchers Code podcast. Oh yeah, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's, the, what's the Twitter handle? So the Twitter handle is at Researchers Code. So research researchers code no no it's it's actually research hers it is but it's spelled it is yes it is but it's weird how i say it because i'm so used to seeing it written down that i just say researchers code yeah (laughs) all right well um thanks very much for coming on the podcast vicky it was a really really interesting discussion yeah it was really great Um, thank you is there any is there anything else that where people can reach you online personally do you do you have your own twitter account for instance or yeah. or any resources you want to point people towards yeah sure so you can follow me on um at victoria car underscore um and if you want to hear a bit more about my research or there's anything that you would like to delve into a bit more i've got a website that you can follow the link on my on my twitter account as well um and yeah, if you want to get in touch with me about anything to do with researchers' codes, my research in AMR, then you can contact me on victoria.car at kcl.ac.uk. Perfect. Thanks very much, Vicky, and thanks for coming on the podcast yeah. again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. It's nice talking to you. To learn more about the work going on at the Alan Turing Institute, visit our website at turing.ac.uk. To get in touch with the podcast team, if you have any questions or suggestions, email us at podcast at turing.ac.uk. Music for this episode was provided by Jamin Sun. You can listen to his latest releases at jaminsun.bandcamp.com. The Turing Podcast is hosted by Ed Calstry, Tara Callum, Ben Walden, Effie Dennis, and produced by Dan Whitfield for the Alan Turing Institute.